This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of March 8th. Uh, This is the first of two weeks with Katie Couric as guest host. And Jeopardy is donating a matching amount uh, equal to the champions winnings and the consolation prizes each day to the pancreatic cancer dream team from stand up to cancer, which is a nice gesture in Alex's memory, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought Katie Couric did an excellent job. Yeah, I I thought so too. She seemed to like get into it pretty smoothly. I mean, obviously, I, I would think she would be nervous. I mean, mm-hmm. she's also spent her entire adult life on TV, so maybe you know, maybe not, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a different different kind of animal. Yeah, definitely. We talked about this last week. Maybe we think that this is the first time a woman has hosted Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as she came on for the Tuesday game, I thought, oh, she has to redo her hair. Maybe it wasn't the Tuesday game, but she definitely had a hairstyle change that having been on the set, I know that she did the hairstyle change in a few minutes. Extremely between, quickly. Between games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they try to make it look as though... Each game is filmed on a different day, but they do film five a day. That is a consideration I had never thought of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she changed how her hair was styled from game to game at least once or twice. Um, wow. Yeah. And I thought she was good. You know, um, professional, prepared, mm-hmm. you know, fun, but not making it too much about herself. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, a few times she had like extra little trivia tidbits and I sort of wondered if they had given those to her like on her like the host gets like a like a schematic mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or like I don't know what to call it like a big they get a big paper like a big map paper map of the board with all the clues on it and I wondered if they had extra trivia tidbits on there for her to add Yeah it seems like it and and I mean especially having these uh guest hosts in now it it does seem like there are at least a few things that are not necessarily scripted but just like you could mention this you could mention Mm -hmm. that like uh because yeah i've noticed it with ken and with uh mike before that there are cuts to the you know cuts to the host as they add a little commentary and that kind of thing felt natural with alex Mm mm-hmm but it's possible he also had it. But I, the, you mentioning that, um, you know, the the host goes over every game before the day begins. So like when the contestants are doing their paperwork signing and their their like orientation and uh, rehearsal rounds and initial makeup and everything before taping actually starts, the host is given the day's games and. They read through everything to make sure they can pronounce everything the right way and ask any questions. And, you know, Alex would would also, like, go to the writers and if, if, if he thought a, a clue was poorly worded, 
he would kind of workshop it with them and they could change the wording of a clue or something like that if he thought there was an issue. Um, so maybe it was during that time that, you know, maybe the host in interacting with the writers says like, oh, could, you know, what could we add here or could we add there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of a natural time where like, if you have a clarification question or like, you know, why would this not be a correct response? Like those kinds of mm-hmm. things can be interesting tidbits to offer yeah. as commentary. So on Monday, March 8th, we have the contestants Matt Weirman, an aerospace engineer originally from Lake Mary, Florida, Justin Yeager, a high school history teacher from Studio City, California, and Laura Portwood Stacer, an author and editor originally from Livonia, Michigan, whose one-day cash winnings total $19,400. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, History According to Herodotus, Real Reviews of the Novel, TV Shows in Two Words, D Middle of the Word, the D is in the exact middle of every response, The Bourgeoisie, and Curve Your Enthusiasm. My seven-year-old said there's an extra clue about all the d middle of the word clues that they must all have an odd number of letters which i thought was a great observation that from him is insightful yes yeah. right nice. to be in the exact middle you have to have a d plus an even number of letters it has to have an odd number of letters so Look at that. yeah that's my guy <laughs> never been prouder yep we're we're big nerds in my house oh yeah i mean it'd be hard not to be yeah uh the real reviews of the novel category they were all pretty negative reviews of novels that have uh history has proven to have some staying power whether they are good novels or not i guess we can debate <laughs> like the 800 dollars level <laughs> yes uh the clue there was oh heathcliff the only consolation which we have in reflecting upon this bronte work is that it will never be generally read <laughs> <laughs> and uh, matt got that one it is wuthering heights i believe I... you're on record on the podcast is it is a waste of your time. <laughs> Do not bother. I disagreed with the review of the $600 level, though. Characterization in general is weak, nor is the commander strongly drawn. Again, the ants are best. It lacks imagination. Justin guessed what is the Joy Luck Club, and then it turned into a triple stumper. Uh, that is The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Yeah. I would not agree that it lacks imagination. I don't think so either. I think, and I don't agree that the character characterization is weak. Although I think the commander is an ambiguous figure, maybe intentionally so. Yes, I'm just going out on a limb here. Perhaps this was written by this review is written by a man who mm. wanted the man to be more central. Yes, could be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, it's never that sort of thing has never happened before. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um. Anyway, daily double number one is very late in the round. It's pick number twenty-eight. It's in the history according to Herodotus category at the six hundred dollar level. Laura finds it. She is in the lead at six thousand over Justin's three thousand and Matt's thirty-eight hundred, and she wagers two thousand. 
and gets the clue. Skeptical for once, Herodotus doubted the accuracy of this poem, questioning why Greeks would fight for so long over one woman. And she gets that correct with what is the Iliad? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Laura is up to 8,000. Uh, Justin is at 3,000, and Matt is at 4,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are composers, science time, strange bedfellows, you can't have just one, portal with L in quotation marks, and the cake is a lie, which for anyone who is not uh, aware of video game, I guess memes, I I guess it's a meme. The cake is a lie is from the game Portal, which is a excellent game i'm not going to get into it but it is all right i feel like i'd heard the cake is a lie but i am Mm -hmm. not familiar with the video game portal there was that all those there were all of those memes going around kind of last summer like 2020 i think where Mm. where people would cut into things that appeared not to be cake and then they would turn out to be cake is that, that that's not the cake is a lie that's everything is cake or something that's some other yeah no no the cake is a lie uh so in the game portal you're playing a person who has been uh, abducted for scientific research and this company that is creating like portal technology you get a portal gun and you can open up like different portals and move through walls and, and stuff like that and so it's basically a puzzle game where you're figuring out how to get through various places using these portals uh but the the uh, like big bad guy is the like um, artificial intelligence Glados, and uh, at the at various points throughout every level, basically says at the end there is cake. There will be cake for you when mm. you finish. You find out that the cake is a lie, which you kind of get that impression pretty quickly. But yeah, okay, uh, I did. I did not have that info oh port l and the cake is a lie okay all mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. okay that's that's fun the cake is a lie category turned out to be about things that had cake in the name but mm-hmm. are not cake what is made by cake bread sellers including their van de porsche rose uh they make wine a surprisingly easy victory is a cakewalk uh, the makeup, which is a trademark of the Noxel Corporation, is pancake makeup. Nobody knew pancake makeup, and so on. Yellow cake yes. is uh, yellow cake uranium. Mm-hmm. Not yes. as tasty as it sounds. Do not eat yellow cake uranium. Um, I imagine you enjoyed the composers category. I did, and I could uh, I could tell that none of the contestants were are like have a background in classical music because mm-hmm. they got the ones that were kind of like general knowledge yeah the top three and then the other the the bottom two they they missed yeah the two thousand dollar clue seemed easy for a two thousand dollar clue to me it did turn out to be a triple stumper yeah yeah that one was the wife of robert schumann she was a child prodigy and an accomplished composer in her own right that is like name a famous female composer whose last name is Schumann. Uh, right, it's, it's Clara. It's Clara Schumann. Yeah, yeah. She actually inspired Robert Schumann to be a composer. He heard her mm-hmm. perform when he was young, and well, she was young and he was even younger, and that kind of that like 
sparked the musical uh, desire in him. And then later on, they met and fell in love. Mm hmm. Daily Double number two comes up in the Port L category at the $1,600 level as the 22nd pick. So pretty late in the round. Matt finds this one. He has 15,400. Uh, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good lead. Laura's at 11,600. Justin's at 9,400. He wagers 4,000. So if he misses, he'll drop down to just barely in second place. The clue is meaning the harbor. This French port was the seat of the Belgian government for a time during World War One, And he guesses what is La Berre? Uh, Le Havre is the answer here. So he does mm. drop down into a pretty close second place. Yep. And Daily Devil number three is in the composer's category at the $1,600 level. Let's pick number 24 just a couple later. Matt finds this one. Like as well. Uh, he is still at 13,400, and the other two are also at the same scores. And he wagers 3,000. And the clue is nicknamed Papa, this 18th century man composed more than 100 symphonies. Uh, and that is not the notorious B.I.G. Mm, they showed no. a picture, so, because they didn't say nicknamed <laughs> Big Papa. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought I really thought it was. Uh, instead, no, it is Haydn, specifically Franz Josef Haydn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if they would have required specificity because his brother Michael was also a composer, not nearly as uh, successful or well known. Mm-hmm. Matt doesn't get that. He guesses who is Strauss, uh, and so he drops down three thousand again. Yes. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Laura is in the lead with 15,600. Matt is in second place with 11,600. And Justin is at 10,200. And we have the category radio history. And the clue, a 1949 broadcast in Spanish of this drama from 11 years before caused mass panic in Ecuador and the destruction of the radio station. I actually, I think, alluded to this a while back. Justin has wagered 5,100. I'm not quite sure what he's thinking there. And he has responded, what is the war of the world? (sighs) So close, but incorrect. So he drops down. Matt has wagered $10,014 and correctly responds, what is War of the Worlds with an S at the end? That S is what Justin was missing. And that is correct. So he comes up to $21,614. Laura has also responded, what is the War of the Worlds Uh, with a cover bet of $7,601. Which brings her up to 23,201 and gets her the win. And if you want to learn more about uh, that Ecuador incident, um, there is a Radio Lab episode. I think that the one I listened to came out in 2008, and the one I'm seeing now came out in 2018, but it looks like looks like it covers. Yeah, it may have been like a rebroadcast that now is dated 2018. Yeah, so go look up that Radiolab War of the Worlds episode. It's a good listen. Nice. So on Tuesday, 
We have the contestants Zach Schreier, a financial advisor from Los Angeles, California, Lindsay Shi, an attorney originally from Germantown, Maryland, and Laura Portwood Stacer, an author and editor originally from Livonia, Michigan, whose two-day cash winnings are now $42,601. And the Jeopardy round categories are Picture the Musical Act, Sports and Games in Shakespeare, Ferris and Observation Wheels, Snakes and Ladders, Cartels, and Ends in B. Mm-hmm. And the Picture the Musical Act category was where they started. It was... There were, there were clues given, but also pictures of, like, emojis to try and guide you to the name of the group. I yes. thought it was pretty gettable. Yeah, agreed. I guess it was neat. Mm-hmm. I do like the idea of a, uh, a Quebecois maple syrup cartel. Yeah. I, I realize that the meaning of the word is not necessarily uh, only r- referring to, like, you know, illegal organizations or, like, you know, criminal drug running court sort of organizations but that's always the association i have when i hear the word cartel uh yeah so the notion of like hardened hardened french canadians you know smuggling maple syrup it just it tickles me yeah no i i felt the same way i'm partial to things i've done a deep dive on but i feel like they missed an opportunity in ferris and observation wheels to have a clue about the the first Ferris wheel at the Chicago World's Fair. Mm, yeah. They did have a Chicago clue, but it was about uh, the movie Divergent and the Ferris wheel that in that like dystopia is still on this Chicago pier. Navy pier was the response there. Laura got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daily Double number one comes up in sports and games in Shakespeare at the thousand dollar level. And Zach finds it. Uh, he's at... 1200 at this point it's the 11th pick laura's at 1800 Lindsay's at 2000 and he uh correctly makes it a true daily double and he gets the clue referred to in love's labors lost novum quinque is a dice game where the goal is to roll these two numbers and he clearly is not familiar with the dice game but he tries his hand at the translation and gets it right uh responding nine and five which takes him into the lead and uh, and then he kind of picks up some momentum. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Zach is in the lead with 8,200. Laura's at 4,400. Lindsay's at 3,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, European cities, 16-letter words, constellation derivations, blank of blank, you lose, and good day, sir. Uh, daily double number two is... In the 16-letter words category, it's at uh, the $1,200 level, pick number 20. Lindsay finds us. He is at 7800 just ahead of Laura's 7200 and behind Zach's 13800 And he wagers 3800 and gets the clue. In a 1923 poem, Robert Frost described himself as this, now meaning one who advocates for the protection of the natural world. And he guesses what is a conservationist... Which only has 14 letters. Yeah. They were looking for an environmentalist. Mm-hmm. I don't know the poem, but I'm guessing that Robert Frost meant it maybe to indicate that he's kind of interested in the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. It certainly didn't have the uh, the meaning that it has 
now, a hundred years later at that time. Right. Yeah. 16 letters is just too many to count. You just have to mm-hmm. head for a very long word and hope, I think, that it's that it's got the right number of letters. Daily Double number three comes up in the you lose category, mostly about people losing political races, entirely about people losing political races, elections, mm-hmm. actually. And uh, this one's the 26th pick, and it's at the $800 level. And Lindsay finds this one as well. He wagers 3000 of his 6000 Laura's at 7200 at this point. Zach is at 13800 with four, just four clues left on the board. 3000 is probably not going to be enough to get him into a lead going into final, but it can position him a little better if he gets it right. He gets the clue. In 2014, he came in second in his North Carolina congressional race. Earlier, he came in second on American Idol. And Lindsay looks like he's about to give up. And then in a kind of, I guess it's better to say something than to say nothing kind of voice, he says, who's Clay Aiken? And that's correct. It's Clay Aiken. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember Which Clay cool. Aiken on American Idol. Yeah, no, that was that was uh it was it was fun to see him get it on his like kind of random, I guess I'll say this, guess. And that that bumps him up into a much better position. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Laura is at seventy six hundred, Lindsay is at eleven thousand four hundred, and Zach is at thirteen thousand eight hundred. And the final Jeopardy category is science fiction, which is similar to yesterday's Response. response yeah yeah <laughs> and the clue is in a 1952 sci-fi story a time traveler returning to the present finds a dead one of these insects on his shoe laura wager 6201 and guesses what is a cockroach and that is incorrect uh so she drops down Lindsay wagered a clean 10,000 and wrote what is a butterfly Mm-hmm. And that is correct. A bit too much on the wager, but it ends up being a moot point because Zach made a cover bet of 9,001 and also wrote, what is a butterfly? Yes. Um, I thought the cockroach guess from Laura was a, was a decent guess. Um, it made me wonder if she was thinking of Kafka as uh, the, metaf- the metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had some other guess in mind. I can't remember what it was. A mosquito or something? I had some rationale for that. I didn't think of butterfly. Yeah, the reference here is to Bradbury's story and uh, the idea of the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants James Fraser, a naval aviator from Norfolk, Virginia. Lori White, a fiction and part-time science writer originally from Grangeville, Idaho. And Zach Schreier, a financial advisor from Los Angeles, California, whose one-day cash winnings total 22801 And we have the Jeopardy round categories Leaders, Characters in Children's Lit, Nicknames, U.S. Coins, Brit Speak, and I've Won an Oscar and an Emmy. Which just feels like bragging. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's not an EGOT, so... Right. Yeah, how about you round that out and come back to me? Mm-hmm. We had an alignment of Learned League and Jeopardy in the nicknames category at the two or at the one thousand dollar level. 
Uh, oh, yes. They showed a picture, and the clue was an official of the FBI's New York office said in 1992, the Don is covered in Velcro, and every charge stuck when when the Bureau at last succeeded in convicting Mafia jo- boss John Gotti, known by this slippery nickname, and that was the Teflon Don. And we also had a Learned League question about I, either either him or Reagan, who we referred right. to as Teflon. Yes, I got it. I got it on Reagan and had forgotten the other one. Yes. Hmm. I knew John Gotti because that was a question that I did not know on my first episode of Jeopardy. Ah, I have no recollection of that, although I was in the room. (laughs) Is it bad that I took a little bit of pleasure in no one getting uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in the Oscar? No, no, that was... uh... I, I I'm with you. Yeah, she uh the the clue there was uh Shakespeare in love and glee at the $600 level. And Katie Couric said she's going to be upset. Does does Gwyneth watch Jeopardy? Unlikely. Places? I don't know. She does not seem concerned with facts. Oh, nope. Could be wrong. Maybe she's a listener. If you are, let us know, Gwyneth. Yeah, definitely. Gwyneth. <laughs> Characters in children's lit at the $400 level, the clue was, when Wendy first meets Peter Pan, he's flown into her room searching for his lost this. James guesses what is a thimble, which suggests to me that James knows Peter Pan moderately well or has, you know, has read Peter Pan at some point. There is a whole plot point early in the book and I think in the play also with a thimble where Wendy says, I want to give you a kiss and he doesn't know where that is. And she sort of thinks better of it. He, he's like holds out his hand for a physical object. And so she drops a thimble in his hand, you know, so Hmm. like you, you wouldn't come up with thimble without having encountered that. Right. Zach tries. What is childhood? Uh, (laughs) Peter Pan has not lost his childhood. Uh, Quite the opposite. He has nothing but, yeah. (laughs) Uh, That one turns into a triple stumper, but it's his shadow. He has flown out the window and his shadow got stuck somehow. I can't remember. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the U.S. coins category at the $800 level. Zach finds it. Uh, He's at negative 200, but he wagers the maximum of 1,000. Lori's at 1600 and James is up as, at 4000 He gets the clue, Old West artist James Earl Frazier designed this 1913 coin with a Native American design. And he guesses what is the Indian head penny, but that is incorrect. And Kitty Couric just says that they were looking for nickel. I wonder if it's the buffalo nickel? That was my guess, yeah. It is. The buffalo nickel. Yeah. So he drops even farther into the red. Yeah, and I think he I think he had a, another tough break or two. Yeah, He just had a hard time getting things going through the entire round. Anyway, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Zach is still down at 200. Lori is at 4,200 and James is at 6,600. And we get the double Jeopardy round categories. Women in mythology. Colorful rivers. Going from first to third. Medicine. Song title adjectives and matic, M A T I C in quotation marks, being at the ends of the correct response. Mm-hmm. We had a forgetting the category moment at the $400 level there. Mm-hmm. Um, the clue was the MCU stands for Marvel This Universe. And Zach guessed what is comic 
it does not end in Matic. It's cinematic, mm-hmm. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We had a coin flip in the Colorful Rivers category at the $800 level. The clue is this headstream branch of the Nile that originates in Ethiopia is the source of almost 70% of its water. James guessed what is the White Nile, which left it open for Zach to get the other one, which is the Blue Nile. Mm-hmm. And that same category is where we find Daily Double number two at the $1,600 level as the seventh pick. Lori finds this one and wagers 2000 of her 7400 uh, She's tied with James at this point, and Zach has 2600 She gets the clue, stretching from Tibet to the Bohai Gulf in the Pacific, this 3,400-mile river is often called the Cradle of Chinese Civilization. And if you're looking for a colorful river in China, you've pretty much got one pick. Yeah. Uh, she knows it. It's the Yellow River. Especially at that length. Even if you're like, well, there might be others. No. Yeah, no. It's the Yellow River. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three is in the medicine category at the $2,000 level. Uh, Lori also finds this one. It's pick number 13. She has uh, extended her lead to 10600 Zach is at 3400 and James is at 7800 And the clue is, as its name indicates, this heart valve regulates blood flow to the lungs. If it's damaged, the heart gets stressed. And she gets it correct with what is the pulmonary valve. Right. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, James is in the lead with 17,400. Lori's in second place with 14,800. Zach is at 9,400. And we get the final jeopardy category literary thrillers and the clue the only Ian Fleming James Bond novel not told in the third person. It's narrated by one of 007's paramours. I have read zero James Bond novels, but I got to the correct response um, on the basis Mm. of the title alone. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zach responds, what is the spy who loved me? So thinking about first person and paramore, that title came to mind uh, for me. Mm -hmm. And that is correct. He gets it correct. Uh, His wager is 1600, bringing him up to 11,000 not sure what his math was there exactly he might have just been heading for a round number if he missed it would have been 7800 i'm not sure but it's it's good it's a you know i think a lower end wager will serve him well here because you know coming in from third place you have to hope that the others are going to miss and drop below you lori also responds, what is the spy who loved me? Um, and she wagers 4,001. That's she's covering a double up from Zach um, mm-hmm. was her was her strategy here. So she moves up to 18,801. And James has not come up with the correct response. He guesses, what is you only live twice? Um, uh. Yeah. And he's wagered 12,202. It's a cover bet. Plus a buck, I think. Mm-hmm. So that drops him down to 5,198. So Lori is our winner going into Thursday. That's right. And on Thursday, we have the contestants Dave Pye, a field application scientist originally from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Emily Hogue, a consultant from Washington, D.C. And Lori White, a fiction and part-time science writer originally from Grangeville, Idaho, who just won 18000 
$801. And the Jeopardy round categories are U.S. landmarks. It's all onions. Up in the air. Neck and necking. NBA logos. And not your everyday words. If the category not your everyday words sounds familiar to anyone, that was a category in Kyle's in my game. I'm sure all of our listeners have an encyclopedic knowledge of that game. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was uh, that was a category in our double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it hasn't been a category since our game. And then it was a category also in 2017, in 2010 and in 2003. Oh, yeah. Rare company. Mm hmm. And I did not know most of these not your everyday words, uh, but I thought they were gettable. Interdigitate means to interlock like these body parts. Uh, That's your fingers. In meteorology, an octa is a unit used to describe the cloud cover of this fraction of the sky. That is one eighth. That feels pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Um, Filiform means resembling this item from a sewing basket. Uh, Dave got that one. That's thread. Um, like filament. Mm-hmm. Uh, a jambo is basically the shin guard of this medieval type of outfit. Uh, Lori tried what is a coat of arms. That's a different thing. It sounds like it should be the same thing, but it's not the same thing. It's, uh, it's a suit of armor. Dave got that mm-hmm. one. Yeah, coat of arms is like the family symbol with like the shield and stuff. Yeah. And then we had uh, from biology, commensalism is a type of this mutual relationship in which one partner benefits and the other is unaffected. And uh, Emily got that one. It's a symbiotic relationship. Uh-huh. Daily double number one comes up in the it's all onions category <laughs> um, at the $800 level. Emily finds this one as the 25th pick. And wagers a thousand of her fifty four hundred. She's in the lead with Lori at four hundred and Dave at forty six hundred. And she gets the clue: when you chop them, onions make your eyes water because they contain compounds of this element, also found in gunpowder. And she guesses what is carbon. I'm sure onions have a great deal of carbon. Um, I would say most of the <laughs> most of an onion is probably carbon. Yeah, uh, but it's not what makes your eyes water. So sulfur is what they were looking for here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that that drops her down a little bit, but not too much. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily and Dave are tied at 4,600, and Lori is not too far behind at 3,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, the over, under, and over and under are in quotation marks. So each response will include one of those. Classic black and white films, religious observances, flags of our feathers, Line item and veto. Uh, mm. Line item. Each clue contained a line from a poem, and you had to provide the item that was missing. So, do I dare to eat this fruit from T.S. Eliot at the $800 level? That is a peach. Do I dare to eat a peach? Uh, as an example, I thought that was kind of the most well known line. That we had. Mm. Yeah, I did not do great. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> Looking at this category. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I didn't come up with the $1,600 level. In a Maya Angelou poem, the dark one of these old time lamps of world sadness has cast its shadow upon the land. Dave got that one. It's a lantern. I think I was looking for kind of a more obscure word. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. Lantern just didn't come to mind for me. At the $2,000 level, we had some Edward Lear. Edward Lear's owl and pussycat dined on mints and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible this. Um, that's a runcible spoon. And Lori got that one. And if I remember correctly, a runcible spoon pretty much looks like a spork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I am recalling that being a thing a little mm-hmm. while back. Yeah. We had a reference to Alex Trebek's favorite movie at the $400 level of classic black and white films. Um, the clue there was How Green Was My Valley beat out this Orson Welles movie to win the 1941 Best Picture Oscar. Lori mm-hmm. got that one at Citizen Kane, and then Katie Couric highlighted that that was Alex Trebek's favorite movie. That was one of the things that I thought they'd probably supplied her with. Yeah. I Yeah. Unless she just knew that. She yeah, might've. she might have. His favorite animal was the muskox. Yes. Yes, indeed. Daily Devil number two is in the religious observances category at the $1,200 level. Lori uncovers it. She is in third place at 4400 It's pick number 11. Emily is at 6200 and Dave is at 8600 and she wagers only 2000 And she gets the clue, Eid al-Fitr, Arabic for... Festival of Breaking Fast marks the end of this holy month. And she gets it correct with what is Ramadan. And Daily Double number three comes up just two clues later as the 13th pick at the $2,000 level of the over-under. Dave finds this one and wagers 3200 of his 10200 Uh Lori's at 6400 Emily's at 6200 um, So he's still going to be in first place if he misses but it'll be a lot closer he gets the clue one of few words with the letter sequence rwr it means too excited or agitated and he did not seem to know and guessed overwrought looking a little discouraged Um, but that's correct Mm -hmm. overwrought is correct and that gave him a good boost and then he had a really good run through mm-hmm. kind of the middle third of the double jeopardy round and really uh really grew his lead quite a lot yes he did uh and the other two didn't really didn't get much going until the last couple of clues but mm-hmm. by the end of the double jeopardy round it was not enough emily is at 8200 Lori is at 11600 and dave Those was are... in a lock position at 25800 mm-hmm. 11600 and 8200 are decent scores yeah nor from which people normally would stand a chance of winning but right. dave just really crushed it mm-hmm. so uh the final jeopardy category is foreign newspapers and the clue Representing its outspoken tone, this newspaper, founded in the 19th century, has the name of a free-spirited opera character. Emily wagered 8,000, and guessed what is Charlie Hebdo. But that is incorrect, so she drops down to 200. Lori wagered everything. It's an error. Which was, yeah. E- even though it's a lock game, like... You're, you could play for second place. That's $1,000, you know? Mm-hmm. And wrote, what is punch? And so and that is also incorrect. So she drops down to zero, which puts her in third place. And Dave wagered 2500 not risking his lock, but uh, he got it right with what is Le Figaro. Mm-hmm. And Katie explains, named for 
a character from Rossini's Barber of Seville, as well as Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Mm-hmm. Is the Figaro in Marriage of Figaro the same character as the Figaro in Barber of Seville? If you, if you have to boil it down, yes, it is the same character. Mm-hmm. Same name, same role, same setting. Yeah, so Dave gets it and uh, has a very impressive win going into Friday. Mm-hmm. So on Friday, March 12th, we have Keith Benarchik, a letter carrier from Columbus, Ohio. Mikal Gould, a librarian originally from Austin, Texas. And Dave Pye, a field application scientist originally from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, whose one-day cash winnings total 28300 Um his name is last name is spelled P-A-I, but we're, co- we're recording this on Pi Day, um, mm-hmm. and that feels apt. Um, feels right. Yeah. So in the Jeopardy round, we have the categories six-letter countries of pop culture, mice, and men, business abbreviations, that's my secret, Captain, I'm always angry. Uh which if you're not familiar with the reference or it's not coming to you, uh, that's from like the climactic scene of the first Avengers movie in the Marvel cinematic universe. That's, uh, that's, uh, the Hulk talking to captain America. Um, and that has been my favorite GIF for a while now, some years yeah, it's really, really encapsulated, I think, an entire generation. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an important one. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> These clues, of course, were not about the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Hulk. They were about secrets, captains, and anger. Um, mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed seeing those categories come out. Yep. We have yet another example of, I, I think we've hit the point where... Um, questions are recycling from our our uh time on the show mm. uh at the thousand dollar level of that's my secret this secret society at yale was formed in 1832 possibly after a dispute with phi beta kappa that's skull and bones i also got a skull and bones question during my run similarly worded but not the same yeah yeah i mean there's like there's only so much trivia that's kind of in the Jeopardy canon, there's always more they can ask, but there's there's stuff that they come back to over and over, and there's stuff that's like you see it quarterly, and then there's stuff you see it every couple years, and you know we're kind of at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was surprised how accessible to me the six hundred dollar level was. Um, it's not Tom Hanks; it's this this Maersk, Alabama captain scene with the lifeboat he was ultimately rescued from. I, you know, I saw the movie when it came out, but it's been a while, but that one came right to me. Uh, it's Captain Phillips. It was a fun mm-hmm. movie. Keith got that one. Hmm. I know that that, that spawned the, uh, I'm the captain now. Yes. Meme, which... Yeah. <laughs> we've got, we've got memes <laughs> layered in memes. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Six-letter countries um, was more challenging than I expected, I think in part because I assume that six letters is going to mean two syllables, but that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. equate, uh, depending on how things kind of line up. Um, right. So uh, Martinique is one of its overseas departments. 
that's France. It's got mm. it's got uh, consonant clusters and stuff. So France has six letters, nice. and I had not realized it. Yes. Um, Leave it yeah. to France to have a word that is longer than it sounds. Yeah. Similarly, Greece. It's got those three E's in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that one I thought I, I, the the clue was pretty easy for me. The Isthmus of Corinth connects the Peloponnese with the mainland of this country. So Peloponnese and uh, and Corinth both are kind of pretty clear pointers for Greece. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I was I <laughs> I was counting the letters on that one too. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in the captain category at the $400 level. It's pick number nine, and Keith finds it. He is at 1,000, David's at 2,200, and Mikal is at 800. And he wagers 682. Must be an important number. He gets the clue. Captain Joseph Hazelwood was in charge on March 24th, 1989, when this oil tanker hit Bly Reef off Alaska's coast. And he gets that correct with what is the Exxon Valdez, which luckily for us was the last major oil spill in history. Mm-hmm. None more to learn after that. Yep. Oh, wait. Yep. Yes, there We are. learned all our lessons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oof. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Dave is at 2,000, Mikal is at 3,600, and Keith is in the lead at 6,482. And the double Jeopardy round categories are alliterative lit... Laboratories, Grant Woods Americana, Overcoming Obstacles, In My Record Collection, and Before and After. Uh, we had a triple stumper, a couple of triple stumpers, I think, in the before and after category. At the $1,600 level, um, we had It's Your Old Home Turf Where You Really Put Your Foot Down About Having That Hamburger Meat. Uh, no one tried for that one. Uh, they were looking for stomping ground beef, which just is squicking me out for some reason. Like, <laughs> yeah, do not, no, it, don't stomp ground beef. Yeah. Um, I'm picturing like, you know, people in, in vats of grapes, except instead of grape, it's ground yeah. beef. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like the, the clue was kind of, awkwardly worded and like really put your foot down i thought was misleading right like stomping ground ground beef yeah because putting your foot down suggests like digging in or like Mm -hmm. uh, being stern or or strict or something yeah putting your foot down doesn't really connect with stomping ground right i think at least in my under maybe there's maybe there's something about that idiom that Mm. i'm missing but If anybody listened to my novels of Charles Dickens deep dive, that would have helped them out in the alliterative lit category at the $2,000 level. Uh, Mikal got this one right. Uh, The clue is Dickens debuted with this serial about a club and its eccentric eccentric members. And uh, that's the Pickwick Papers, of course. Mm -hmm. And then right above that, at the $1,600 level, we had um, some Edgar Allan Poe. So we're uh, we're doing a good job of covering the Jeopardy canon here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, we are. Indeed. One of which, another, another Jeopardy canon, the $800 level of laboratories located near Chicago, a national physics lab, bears the name of this Italian who helped develop the atom bomb. If it's Italian-American physicist, it's Fermi. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. Always Fermi. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had an interesting, for Jeopardy, you just have to know how it's spelled. You don't have to know how to pronounce it thing in, uh, in overcoming obstacles at the $800 level. This Swedish teen activist says of her Asperger's, I'm sometimes a bit different and being different is a, is a superpower. Mikal rang in and said, who is Thunberg? And uh, Katie Couric said, uh, we'll, we'll take it, but it's Greta Thunberg. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you just you just have to um, you can pronounce it correctly or you can give a viable pronunciation that shows that you know how it's spelled. Either one is OK. Yeah. Daily Double number two comes up in the Grant Woods Americana category at the $1,600 level as the 17th pick. McCall finds this one and wagers 2000 of her 9600 Dave is at 3200 Keith is at 12882 And she gets the clue. Wood painted West Branch, Iowa in a work titled The Birthplace of This President. It went to the time's up signal um and then she guessed who is truman um that's not correct the correct response here is herbert hoover Mm -hmm. daily double number three is in the overcoming obstacles category at the twelve hundred dollar level it's pick number 25 mccall finds it she is at thirteen thousand two hundred dave is back way back at sixteen hundred but keith is in the lead at fourteen thousand eighty two and she wagers two thousand Gets the clue, diagnosed with ALS in the 60s, and given a few years to live, he lived another 50-plus to become one of the greatest scientific minds of all time. And she gets it right with who is Hawking. Mm-hmm. So that brings her back up some, and then she has a, a good rest of her round. And at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, she is neck and neck with Keith. McCall is at 16,800. Keith is at 16,082, so $718 behind. Uh, Dave is at 4,400. And the final Jeopardy category is historic places. And they get the clue. Eight presidents have visited this battle site with an Algonquian name about 50 miles from Washington. For McKinley, it was a return visit. Dave has what is, and he started to write Appomattox, but crossed it out. Um, But it doesn't matter because he's wagered zero. So he's staying at 4,400. Keith has wagered 16,080. Everything except $2. That is probably not the correct move in this situation. Mm -hmm. And he guesses what is Monmouth. I think he's in the wrong Wrong war. war, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a revolutionary Um, battle. Yes, I I know it from Hamilton, the musical. Uh, (laughs) The only thing that's ever really made revolutionary history stick in my head. Um, (laughs) And uh, so he drops down to $2 and Michelle has wagered 16,700. So that's a a cover bet and a tiny bit, um, because who would want to exactly cover 16,082 doubled? She guesses what is Gettysburg. Um, That doesn't fit geographically or linguistically, but she's in the right war. So she drops down to 100, which means that Dave has won in a triple stumper. Congrats to Dave for smart wagering, and uh, we'll see him again on Monday. And uh, my my spouse noted that this is um, an odd situation where McCall probably 
wishes that she had gone into Final Jeopardy from second place. Mm-hmm. Because she clearly kind of knew wagering strategy and I think would have known how to handle that situation. This is a situation where whoever was in second place could have taken the win right? Um, with strategically optimal wagering. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think you mentioned, but the correct response is Antietam. Yes, the correct response here is Antietam. Um, and Katie Couric noted uh, that there are three Civil War sites with Native American names. That seems like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm skeptical, but that, that that's all there is. But okay, yeah, they probably have, any... have done more research than me about this. Yeah, uh, my, my, yeah. I thought Manassas because I was like, that sounds like a like a not Anglo name. But yeah, that was not it. What? Yeah, what is the? Uh, that's all. I also thought Manassas. What is the etymology of Manassas? Let's find out. Hebrew. <laughs> oh well, from I... Manasseh. Of course it is. Wait, was Appomattox? A civil war. But it was, I don't think right? it was. A, so, no, I don't was think it, it not was a battle, battle site? site? Okay. It was. It was where they signed. No, the it's treaty, okay. But... Got it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it, Appomattox is a Native American word, but it's not a battle site. So yeah. that's uh, Dave was heading there, and and then knew that that was that that didn't fit. Um, mm-hmm. It is a. It is an Algonquian word. Okay. So yeah, he was um, almost linguistically correct, but it didn't fit. Yeah. So that's the week. The, this is the time in the middle of the show where we take a break to remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash You can check it out. We've got a bit of bonus content up there, uh, including our recap of the greatest of all time tournament, which is now well over a year ago. So long ago. <clears throat> so long. But... Uh, you can go there and check that out if you want to uh, slide us a few bucks or or something. And, uh, you know, even if you don't want to do that, you can always leave us reviews and ratings that we appreciate it and it helps us out. So uh, if you leave a review, we will read it on the show. Just like this one from Lori Lander Goodman. Uh, it says... I love when Emily and Kyle go down an interesting rabbit hole. It's gratifying to know that there are two people out there who, like me, are interested in everything. Thank you, Lori. Yes, it is nice to know that. I have the same feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And of course, Lori was a guest on our show, too. So if Mm -hmm. you happen to have been a a Jeopardy contestant, you could be a guest on our show. We would Mm -hmm. love to have you. Absolutely. So... Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I mean, it doesn't really matter, but uh, yeah. It is a very on-the-nose triple stumper for me. Okay, my first guess is, are we talking about the Book of Kells? We're talking about the Book of Kells! Yes. Yes. Okay. Got it in one. Got it in one. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm also I'm also excited because I know very little about the Book of Kells, mm-hmm. other than that it's like an enlightened manuscript, I think. Yes, I an illuminated manuscript. Illuminated. Yes, illuminated. Uh, yeah. So this was in the blank of blank category in the double Jeopardy round on Tuesday, and the clue was it's thought that monks on the Isle of Iona produced this illuminated manuscript of the four Gospels, and nobody ventured a guess. Uh, that is, of course. 
the Book of Kells. And uh, my husband was surprised to realize that the Isle of Iona, which he had heard of, is not Greek. Um, it sounds it sounds like it could be Greek, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It sounds it sounds Greek. Um, no, it's uh, in the Inner Hebrides on the western coast of Scotland, and uh, Iona Abbey has been there for a very long time. And it's still there. I know of Iona um, because, like, colleagues go there for, like, retreats and spiritual pilgrimages and stuff. So I didn't know a whole lot about the Book of Kells um, and was surprised to realize that it was connected to Iona. Um, So I thought I'd look into it a little bit. So uh, let's talk about the Book of Kells. Yes. Um, Yeah. So the Book of Kells is an illuminated manuscript of the four Gospels of the Christian New Testament. It is currently housed at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, um, and it is the most famous of the medieval illuminated manuscripts, famous because of its intricacy, detail, and the majesty of the illustrations. And this being an auditory medium, I can't really do it full justice. So I would encourage you all to go kind of look up some of the images of the Book of Kells at some point. Um, If you're like, yeah, you could put it on the Patreon. Oh, yeah, let's put it on the Patreon. We'll put some images on the Patreon. But yeah, if you're if you're uh, listening on a device, and you know, you can you can Google it, like look at some pictures. So yeah, the Book of Kells was produced by monks of St. Columba's Order of Iona, Scotland, but exactly where it was made is disputed. And the majority opinion now tends to attribute it to the scriptorium of Iona, but conflicting claims have located the site of its creation in Northumbria um, or in Pictland in eastern Scotland. A monastery founded around 561 on Iona uh, became the principal house of a large monastic confederation. In 806 CE, following a Viking raid on the island, which left 68 of the community dead, the Columban monks took refuge in a new monastery at Kells in County Meath. I hope I'm saying that right. And for many years, the two monasteries were governed as a single community. And that's kind of where the ambiguity about where exactly this manuscript was made comes from. Um, It was around this time that the Book of Kells was written. So there's no way of knowing if it was produced entirely at Iona or entirely at Kells or begun in Iona and finished in Kells. The book measures uh, 33 by 25 centimeters. It's made of vellum pages decorated in painted images, uh, accompanied by Latin text, which is written in what they call insular script. Insular comes up a lot when you're reading about the book of Kells, and it doesn't mean insular in the kind of modern usage um, or like lay usage. Insula is Latin for island. And so insular art, insular script, uh, referred to the styles characteristic of post-Roman Ireland and Britain. Um, It's also known as Hiberno-Saxon art. Um, Today, the Book of Kells consists of 340 vellum leaves uh, or folios, totaling 680 pages. Um, The majority of the folios are part of larger sheets called bifolio. So a bifolio, you fold in half, 
and then you have two folios and a total of four pages for that for that one bifolio folded sheet. Uh, the bifolios are nested inside of each other and sewn together to form gatherings called choirs. Uh, starts with a Q. Uh, that's come up as a an unusual word on Jeopardy before, so it was fun to see it come up as I was researching the Book of Kells. On occasion, a folio is not part of a larger folded bifolio, but is instead a single sheet inserted within the choir. And the folios, the extant folios that we that we have now, are gathered into thirty-eight choirs. Numbering was added at some point, uh, but due to a numbering error, uh, 36 is repeated. So they're numbered from 1 to 339. And then when scholars are referencing one of the pages numbered 36, if you're referencing the second one, you put an asterisk to indicate. Um, and the numbering is for like sets of facing pages. Um, so the the bottom left is numbered. Um, and then you you use recto and verso. Recto and verso. Yeah, so so yeah, instead of instead of being numbered like like our books are now, but you would refer to the number and then whether it's the recto or verso on that set of set of pages. Originally, the folios were of no standard size, um, but they were cropped to the current size during a 19th century rebinding. Each text page has 16 to 18 lines of text. Um, the manuscript is in remarkably good condition considering its age, though many pages have suffered some damage to the artwork over the centuries due to rubbing and, and uh, that kind of thing. The book was apparently never finished. Uh, the projected decoration of some pages appears only in outline. And it's believed that some folios from the original manuscript, some 30-ish, have been lost over the centuries. There was an account that indicated there were 344 folios in the year 1621, uh, but several had already been lost by then. And the estimate of how many are missing is based on gaps in the text and uh, the absence of certain key illustrations. Uh, the extant book contains preliminary matter, the complete text of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John through chapter 17, verse 13. Uh, the remainder of the Gospel according to John and an unknown amount of the preliminary matter is missing um, and was perhaps lost when the book was stolen early in the 11th century. The preliminary matter that we do have still consists of two fragmentary lists of Hebrew names contained in the Gospels, Gospel summaries, uh, which in Latin are called brevis causae, short biographies of the evangelists, and Eusebian canon tables, um, which are, they, they predate chapters and verses in the Bible. They're, they're tables that index gospel passages against each other. You know, what you can find in all of the Gospels and what you can find uh, just in one or two or three. And uh, apparently these tables were also like for like contemplation and meditation, although I don't really understand that. But there's a bunch of like weird kind of numerology stuff in early Christianity that perplexes me. Text itself is accompanied by many full page um, miniatures, and miniature here also is a technical term. A miniature is an illustration, um, and the word miniature actually is derived from the Latin meaning to color in red. So 
miniature meant like a colored illustration in a text. And then these illustrations tended to be very finely detailed, small, kind of on a small scale. And then miniature came to have its contemporary meaning of like diminutive because miniatures tended to be diminutive. But the etymology actually does not have to do with size. It has to do with like the red pigment. Um, And smaller painted decorations appear throughout the text in unprecedented quantities. The decoration of the book is famous for combining intricate detail with bold, energetic compositions. There is traditional Christian iconography and ornate swirling motifs typical of insular art. Uh, There are humans, animals, mythical beasts, a lot of Celtic knotwork and interlacing patterns in vibrant colors. Many of the minor decorative elements are imbued with Christian symbolism to further emphasize the themes of the major illustrations. As is usual with insular work, there's no use of gold or silver leaf in the manuscript. I read that and I thought that can't possibly be correct because I'm looking at these pictures and it sure looks like it's gold leaf, um, but it's actually some particular sort of luminous kind of yellow pigment that they were using. So they they used red and yellow ochre. They used green copper pigment. Um, I believe the green copper is responsible for a little bit of the damage to the manuscript over the centuries. It's like a little bit corrosive. Indigo, possibly lapis lazuli in all kinds of combinations to um, have really rich and varied colors. The artists who painted these works were known at one point as miniaturists and later as illuminators. The illuminator would begin with a sheet of vellum on which the text had usually already been written. Uh, and in the in the Book of Kells, uh, it is an insular majuscule script. Uh, so mostly mostly up, uppercase, uh, minuscule is uh, mostly lowercase there. So um, the Book of Kells is an insular majuscule script with occasional lowercase minuscule letters. Uppercase and lowercase is anachronistic in this case, uh, because it refers to the cases where like printers would keep their their type, right? Your uh hmm. your majuscule letters would go into the into the uppercase of uh of movable type. So they were uppercase letters. Hmm. The section of the page that the illuminator was working on um, would be rubbed with clay or isinglass or with a mixture of ox bile and egg albumin or with cotton wool dipped in a diluted glue and honey solution. Uh, Those were the ways they would prepare it. And once the surface was prepared, uh, the monk would ready his brushes made from the hair of squirrel tails pressed into a handle, um, as well as his pens and paints and set to work. Errors in the images were erased by rubbing them away with chunks of bread. Uh, That's that's how they did that before they had rubber erasers. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there was some technology that comes between chunks of bread and rubber erasers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never would have occurred to me that they used bread for that. Um, right. Yeah. The book was designed so that each of the gospels would have an elaborate introductory decorative program. Each gospel was originally prefaced by a full page miniature containing the four evangelist symbols followed by a blank page, then a portrait of the evangelist, which face would face the opening text of the gospel, uh, which would have an elaborate decorative treatment. Um, some of those pages have been lost, but it's clear from what we have that that was consistent throughout, uh, consistent format throughout the book. 
Uh, the ornamentation of the opening few words of each gospel is extraordinarily lavish, so elaborate that the text itself is almost illegible. And in many places in the Book of Kells, to fully appreciate the decoration and illumination, you need to use a magnifying glass because it's so finely detailed. The Cairo key, they call it the Cairo page, but we're American, we say Kai. Uh, so the Cairo page is especially famous. Um, it's like a, a second opening of Matthew after the genealogy and the Greek letters Chi and Rho consume the entire page. We've talked about this before, I think in the context of Constantine, Mm -hmm. but Chi and Rho are the first two letters of Christ and are kind of famously like a, an abbreviation of, and like symbol for uh, Jesus Christ. Um, So in the, in the, Kai Rho page, um, the letter Kai dominates the page with one arm kind of swooping across the majority of the page, and then the letter Rho is snuggled underneath the arms of the Kai. Uh, both letters are divided into compartments which are lavishly embellished with knotwork and other patterns, and then the background is a mass of swirling, knotted decoration. And then within this mass of, like, knotwork and... Um, and swirling designs are hidden animals and insects. Uh, there are three angels arising from one of the cross arms of the Kai. It's the most lavish Cairo monogram in any insular gospel manuscript. But these Cairo pages were kind of a tradition across the genre, um, with the with the one from the Book of Kells being the um, the most remarkable. The decoration of the book is not limited to the major pages. So there are these pages that are like just absolute like work of art, like exquisite detail. But the pages that are kind of much more kind of texty are also embellished in really interesting ways. Um, Initial letters are decorated, filled in, embellished. Um, Small figures of animals and humans are twisted and tied into into the text um, and into the hidden in the knotwork, many significant texts, uh, such as the Lord's Prayer, have decorated initials. Um, the page containing the text of the Beatitudes in Matthew has um, a large miniature along the left margin of the page, in which the letter B, which begins each line, is linked into an ornate chain. The genealogy of Jesus Christ found in the Gospel of Luke contains a similar miniature where where the word qui is repeatedly linked along the left margin. A lot of the animals included are symbolic. We've talked about uh, peacocks as Christian symbols because people thought their flesh didn't decay, uh, which is incorrect. So you find a lot of peacocks. They use snakes as symbols of the resurrection because they shed their skins and have a new life. There are small animals that serve to mark like turns in the path. So little illustrations of animals kind of mark kind of breaks. Um, They fill spaces left at the ends of lines. Um, No two designs are the same. um, And there's no manuscript that has a comparable amount of decoration. It's just unbelievably elaborate. Um, The work was done by three separate anonymous scribes who are identified in the present day as Hand A, Hand B, and Hand C. It was common for more than one scribe to work on a manuscript or even on a single page to proofread and correct another's errors or to illuminate a text that already had been copied. And scholars can tell there were three because the hands are uh, differentiated subtly 
um, in ways that include how many lines of text the, the each scribe liked to put on a page, differences in their preferred ink, the frequency which which with which they used minuscule versus majuscule letters. Um, the majority of the text is in majuscule, but each hand has kind of different preferences about when they might include a minuscule letter. E and S come up in minuscule most often. Uh, the earliest historical references to the book can be found in a 1007 CE entry in the Annals of Ulster, uh, which records that the great gospel of Columkill, the chief relic of the Western world, was wickedly stolen during the night from the Western sacristy of the great stone church at Cananus on account of its wrought shrine. The manuscript was recovered a few months later, um, minus its golden and bejeweled cover. Um, it was apparently found under a sod. And it's generally assumed that, that this text refers to the Book of Kells. Um, if that's correct, then the book was in Kells by 1007 CE um, and had been there long enough for thieves to learn of its presence. The force of ripping the manuscript free from its um, valuable cover may account for the, I mean, I guess that the, the manuscript contained there, it also would have been valuable. Um, but, but yeah, I think the, the cover was taken for its, for its materials, but the, the missing folios, at least some of them may have been lost at that time. Oh, I should have said this already, um, that this book was like the purpose, um, was that it was like used in church, like as an altar piece that it would have been, um, read from, but probably the person doing the reading would be familiar with the text um, and that it would be kind of held up and shown to the congregation. Think about how a teacher uses a picture book, that it would have been visually impactful and that that would have been kind of the goal. The Book of Kells remained in Kells until 1654. Uh, in that year, Cromwell's cavalry was quartered in the church at Kells and the governor of the town sent the book to Dublin for safekeeping. Uh, Henry Jones, who later became Bishop of Meath after the Restoration, presented the manuscript to Trinity College in Dublin in 1661, and the Book of Kells has been there ever since, except for brief loans to other libraries and museums. It's been on display to the public in the old library at Trinity College since the 19th century. Over the centuries, it has been rebound several times. Uh, during a 19th century rebinding, uh, the pages were badly cropped. I mentioned that rebinding when I was talking about kind of the size of the book as we have it. And small parts of some illustrations were lost in that process. The book was also rebound in 1895, uh, but that rebinding broke down quickly. By the late 1920s, several folios had detached completely and were kept separate from the main volume. Um, and in 1953, bookbinder Roger Powell rebound the manuscript in four volumes, uh, stretched several pages that had developed bulges. Two volumes can normally be seen displayed at Trinity, one opened at a major decorated page and one opened to show two pages of text with smaller decorations. And they apparently change which page is shown every day. In 2011, the town of Kells mounted a petition to have at least one of the volumes returned to the town arguing that they are the original owners of the manuscript and citing the over 500,000 visitors annually who come to Trinity College to see the work, claiming that they deserve to have a share in some of the benefits of tourism. 
that the Book of Kells has drawn to Trinity for so long. The request was denied, however, um, citing the delicate nature of the manuscript and uh, claiming that Kells would not be able to care for it as it needs to be cared for, um, as well as Trinity College can. Uh, facsimiles have been made of the Book of Kells for scholars, art historians, and other fields of study, um, but the manuscript itself is no longer loaned or allowed to be handled, um, and the work remains at Trinity, where it is displayed to this day. So that's the Book of Kells. Cool. Yeah. I think I covered it. It's it's a really cool book. I did not know a whole lot about it when I started this. I, I knew kind of Ireland illuminated manuscript. I'm not sure I could have told you it had it was the text of the the gospels. <laughs> like uh yeah. And it's it's just really cool to look at. It's very impressive. So are you ready for a quiz? I am. Alright. So you're starting off with ten points because you guessed it on the first try. Yes. And this is a Book of Kells quiz. I'm just connecting everything to the Book of Kells in some way. Okay. So question one. There are many deviances in the Book of Kells from the Vulgate. Oh gosh, did I ever say that it is mostly the Vulgate translation? Maybe maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Uh, it's, all, it's all in Latin. Now I have. Uh, it's all in Latin and mostly the Vulgate, Vulgate but there are many deviances uh, from the Vulgate or any other known translation attributed in part to the scribes likely often working partly from memory. Uh, but one particularly stark difference is in the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 in the Vulgate, Jesus speaks about bringing gladium, but in the book of Kells, this is changed to Jesus speaking about bringing gaudium, uh, what do those two words, gladium and gaudium, mean in English? Jeez. Uh, this one's a little deep, I think. Well, I think a gladium is a sword, but I don't know what a gaudium is. G-A-U-D-I-U-M, if that helps at all. It doesn't. No. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a guess. Okay, so so you're right that gladium is sword. Let's give you five points for that. Gaudium is joy. Uh, so it oh. it has all but one letter in common with gladium. Um, so it seems like likely that the um, that the scribe had the text in front of him and maybe maybe was not fully paying attention uh, to the meaning of what he was writing. So this is the verse where Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Hmm. Uh, and it gets changed in the book of Kells to, I came not to bring peace, but joy, uh, which is much nicer. Um, yeah. And uh, in Latin, it, it can be kind of translated as I came to not only bring peace, but to also bring joy. Which is lovely, uh, yeah. but, you know, but not what the original says. All right, so five points. You're at 15. Question two. I believe that I mentioned that much of the lettering of the Book of Kells is in iron gall ink. Iron gall ink is made by adding iron to acid extracted from galls. Where would you normally find this gall? Uh... It's either uh, ancient France, 
Mm. Or inside the body. Mm. And if I say inside the body, is that specific enough? That would be specific enough, I think. Then that's what I'm going to say. All right. Neither is correct. I'm sorry. This is um, <laughs> this is and this is the other use of gall. Uh, these are oak galls, tree galls. Um, galls are uh, not just like like the gall bladder, um, but galls are swelling growths on the external tissues of plants. Um, oh, so yeah, so we, we you might also call these oak apples. If you ever see on an oak tree, something that looks like a fruit, uh, it's not an acorn. It's like a little like kind of two or three inch sphere mm-hmm. thing. Um, that's an oak gall. And uh, they extract this uh, this liquid from the oak galls and uh, and mix it with other stuff to make ink. Um, Interesting. Yeah. All right. So you're, you're at 15 points and we're on to question three. Among the book of Kel's many illustrations are numerous iterations of the symbols of the four evangelists. So you probably know that there are kind of symbolic creatures associated with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So for two points each, and a two-point bonus if you get all four, um, what are those traditional symbols? You don't need to know which one goes with which name, just the just the creatures. Oh, man. I'm going to go with lamb. And I don't know, I'm just like uh, lion and bird of some kind. Can you be more specific? <laughs> Probably dove. Uh, and uh, I don't know, fish. Those are actually not bad guesses, um, but you get two points. So the the four uh, the symbols of the four evangelists. Uh, uh, a lion is Mark. An angel or a winged man is Matthew. Okay. Um, a winged ox or a bull is Luke. Okay. Um, and then an eagle is John. So you did have lion. Um, and these four creatures are associated with the evangelists because they appear in Ezekiel and again in Revelation. Um, and then they come to be associated with the four gospels over the centuries. Um, and then you see them a lot in like in art, in church architecture, um, mm. In the Book of Kells, yeah. So you'll you'll see that symbolism all over the place in Christian art. Yeah. So you're at seventeen points. And question four: The Book of Kells ran into some distinctly modern trouble when Trinity College sought to register a global trademark. What corporation had beef with Trinity's bid to register BK merchandise? <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to guess Burger King. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Burger King is correct. Uh, ultimately, nice. the two entities were able to come to an understanding. Um, both have BK trademarked, which is permissible because uh, there's no chance of confusing the two of them. <laughs> they're they're in pretty different fields uh so you can trademark the same the same name or abbreviation or whatever uh as long as they're um kind of not in conflict with each other uh okay. so that's that's what ended up happening um yeah 
Uh, so you're at 27 points. Question five. Um, speaking of Book of Kells merchandise, on March 16 of 2017, what political figure wore a Book of Kells tie while giving a press conference on Donald Trump's proposed budget? Uh, this person was at the time the director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, but he went on to serve as acting White House chief of staff from January 2019 to March 2020. And then he was the U.S. Special Envoy for Northern Ireland. And I have a clue on this if you want it. I would or a like hint. that, yeah. Uh, he is also noted for his participation in Learned League. Oh, shoot. Oh. Uh, I'm going to guess Kelly. That's not a bad guess. Uh, it's very. That's a very Irish guess. It was Mick Mulvaney. Um, Mick Mulvaney, yeah. Oh, yeah, Mick Mulvaney. Yeah. Mulvaney, um, yeah. Uh, I always get him mixed up with John Mulaney. Oh, head. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I remembered that he had worn this Book of Kells tie. It was like the day before St. Patrick's Day, you know. Mm. Um, so, But I remembered this because in my circles, many of my colleagues were noting the irony of wearing a tie that was literally the text of the Gospels while presenting a budget that drastically cut poverty relief programs. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he was he was wearing his, his Book of Kells tie. I think, you know, because, you know, he's Irish and it's Irish and, you know. All right, so you're at 27 points. And we're going to call the final category Oscar-winning films. Well, I have seen a movie, so I'm going to wager 26. Okay. For 53 points, if you are correct, the 2009 film The Secret of Kells is an animated film about the making of the Book of Kells. Uh, my family and I actually watched it right after I finished researching this deep dive and right before we, we recorded. Um, it's also a few days before it's St. Patrick's Day, so it was very apropos. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Animated Picture, but it lost to what other film, uh, which featured the voice of frequent Jeopardy guest Christopher Plummer as long-lost explorer Charles Muntz? Oh, that's Pixar's best movie, Up. I agree, and you are correct. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, so yeah, Up won the uh, Oscar for Best Animated Film. Um, I guess that would have been in 2010, right? Yeah. Beating out uh, The Secret of Kells. Although The Secret of Kells is lovely. I think, you know, I, I <laughs> you, can't, you just can't compete with Up. Uh, yeah, The Secret of Kells is the first of a trilogy of Irish folklore animated films. Um, the other two are Song of the Sea, which came out in 2014, and then Wolf Walkers came out in 2020. I haven't seen either of those, but I'm going to, with director Tom Moore helming the trilogy. Um, hmm. And having seen The Secret of Kells, like, it is visually stunning and, you know, a, a good movie. It creeped my five-year-old out at okay. certain points, but... Yeah, it was an animated children's movie about the Book of Kells, and uh, I'd recommend it. Nice. So, thank you, Kyle, for potting with me. Of course. A delight to talk about Jeopardy with you. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
leave a review or a rating if you would be so kind. Check out our Patreon if you're interested in supporting us in that way. We're on patreon.com slash potentpotables. Um, and if that's not viable for you, we still would love for you to uh, tell your friends about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back with you next week uh, with another week of Jeopardy! hosted by Katie Couric. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.